Thank you, Hayes. Thank you, team. And again, good morning, church. I am glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Hey, grab your Bibles if you would. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 is where we're going to be today as we continue our series uh, called Draw Near. We are learning what does it mean to truly draw near to the Lord and He to draw near to us. And look, I hope that, thank you, Hayes, I hope that you've been practicing this, you've been experimenting and learning and growing in your prayer life. And one of the ways we've been doing that over the past month is to pray all together at 1 p.m. We've been praying as one uh, wherever we find ourselves at 1 p.m. And today is actually the last day of that emphasis. We did that for this month. And so my alarm will go off one more time this afternoon. Uh, And it's been cool to find myself in multiple places and with different people And to stop and pray for a few minutes, just recognizing I'm praying with you, wherever you might be, all throughout the city. And look, that's ending today. You can continue that practice, and I would encourage you to do so if you like. I think that would be awesome. Uh, But we'll be doing some different things, like the prayer nights we talked about earlier uh, as an emphasis in November. But again, the point is not simply that we would learn about prayer, but that we would actually pray more. So as we have jumped in with praying as one, I hope they'll be jumping in with us on Wednesday nights as well. But Matthew 9, verse 35 is where we'll begin in just a second. Matthew chapter 9 Verse 35. Uh, while you were turning there, I wonder how many of you guys were here for the snowpocalypse. Does anybody remember this? Yes? If you were a longtime Birmingham native, you will not have forgotten January 28th, 2014. Uh, this coming January, it will be eight years since the snowpocalypse. I know we all feel just a little bit older after that. Uh, But if you were not here, uh, here's what happened. January 28th was a normal day. Uh, We all thought everything was going to be fine, uh, but the weather did something super weird and very unexpected and caught us all off guard, and the roads just really began to ice almost immediately, middle of the day, Uh, and then we got two inches of snow on top of that, and it just snarled everything. Uh, and we just didn't see it coming. I remember Allison call me, calling me. We were living in Bluff Park at the time. And, and she said, Adam, the roads are getting kind of crazy. People are sliding around. We might get trapped at the house for a while. And I said, well, at least go pick up Chick-fil-A and bring it back before we get trapped. And she's still mad at me about that. Uh, but I did not understand. I did not know what was going on. None of us did. It was that fast. It was just kind of weird. Like, we just didn't see it coming. And look, it snarled everything. People just literally just left their cars where they were. It was like the walking dead. I mean, it was just kind of crazy what happened. I mean, look at all that. That's all right here in Birmingham. But as this was unfolding, something cool happened. As people were walking down highways, trying to get home, trying to figure out what to do. And as literally hundreds of thousands of us were stranded in different places, everybody began to reach out to help their neighbor. And we saw people help each other out in some really cool ways. I mean, some of you might have been teachers who stayed with your kids for two days in a classroom taking care of them for their incredibly anxious parents who were stuck at home and couldn't get to them. There were people who found themselves stuck in restaurants because they couldn't get home and the staff there would just cook up food and feed everybody as everybody's just kind of sleeping on the floor. I I know some of you might have had four-wheel drive vehicles. I saw a bunch of folks and new stories of people who just said, hey, I'm going to run around and just ferry people off of a highway and try to get them to their house because they couldn't get there. 
I even heard a story about a guy who got a helicopter ride for one of his kids who was in trouble so they could actually get some medical help uh, from them. I know for Allison and I, uh, somebody, we were just walking around in our neighborhood and, and we saw this woman and she said, look, I'm staying at this house. It's a friend of mine, but there's no food here. There's no people here. I don't know what to do. And we just took her back to our home and man, just got her loaded up with a bunch of stuff from our pantry so she would be all right. And look, I bet all of us have stories like this. It was an incredible act of mercy and grace that when our neighbors were in need, we all just kind of jumped around to help them. We, we went out of our way to help one another. It was actually fairly cool. But I think the question for us today is, is are we still acting that way toward our neighbors? Are we still reaching out to drop everything to help our neighbors in need and the answer for us is no to that. And there's a simple explanation why. It's not the snowpocalypse anymore. Look, there's no snow on the ground. It's Alabama for crying out loud. And people seem to be fine. I mean, look, they're taking care of themselves. If they were in need, I would stop and help them again. But I think they're fine. So there's just no need. And so we all have kind of gone off on our own directions. But we don't seem to reach out and help people like we did that day during the snowpocalypse because we don't think there's a need. But what if there actually still is? What if our neighbors are actually in desperate need? I wonder if we saw things as the Lord sees them, if you and I might continue to reach out in brand new ways. And I actually think that's something the Lord wants us to do. So look where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 35. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. This is actually at the very beginning uh, of, our, uh, of the ministry uh, of Jesus Christ. And we can pull those down now. Uh, really, the beginning of the ministry. And look what he says, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now listen, this is a passage that may be familiar to some of you, but Jesus is seeing something incredible. When he would stop and preach wherever he was, whether it was the Sermon on the Mount or in all these cities and villages, a crowd would form. And I imagine that crowd looked a lot like us. It was just the normal people of the town. It wasn't just the poor. It wasn't just the afflicted. It was everybody. It was folks that you would see on any normal day walking through the streets. And so if God amassed this crowd today, it would look like us. And we look around and say, well, everybody looks fairly good. I mean, they look pretty good. Everybody seems fairly normal and all right. But when Jesus looks at the crowd, he sees something completely different. Let's break this down. Look at verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Question. Which part of that verse really stands out to you the most? When you read verse 35, what's the thing that really jumps out at you? Because for me, and I bet for many of us, it's that last phrase. Jesus healed every disease and every affliction. Now, I'd show up for that, wouldn't you? Dude, if Jesus shows up and he's healing everybody, I'm showing up for that. I want to see that. 
If Jesus is there and you're watching him heal all kinds of diseases, physical ailments, spiritual ailments, man, I would want to show up. That is incredible. That is miraculous. That is quite literally life-changing for the people who were experiencing it. To us, that seems like the biggest thing, the most important thing, the, the most powerful thing that Jesus does, but it's not. Because notice where it comes in the verse. It's the last thing he mentions. Jesus actually mentions two other things first. He says, no, I'm going to go all in towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. To Jesus, that's primary. That the thing he must do before we get to the healings, before we get to taking care of people's ailments, they need to hear the gospel of the kingdom. They need to know that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. That in him, there can be eternal life, both now and hereafter. That God hasn't forgotten them or abandoned them. And that he gives his gospel by grace and not by works. He says, it's more important that people even hear the gospel than that they see and have these amazing healings. You might say, yeah, but Adam, these people are hurting. These people have, have real, presenting, present problems, and that is true. But Jesus did those as a secondary measure because all of the healings were temporary. We know that, right? Jesus healed hundreds of people, if not thousands, and not one of them is still with us. Not one of them is still alive, which means that for all the healing that Jesus gave them, sooner or later, something else came and death came upon them and they're not here. Jesus didn't simply come to heal a present problem. He came to heal a bigger problem, which is this. People are lost without the gospel. They are lost without eternal life. And so the most important thing is the gospel. He says, the reason I'm doing these, these healings is as a sign so that you'll believe what I tell you about the gospel, that I actually am the Messiah, that I, I really mean what I say, that this is true. If you don't believe me, believe the signs. But the most important thing is that you believe the gospel. You need this. And so Jesus saw the preaching of the gospel as paramount. Why? Well, look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. All right, so Jesus looks around at this crowd and he says, I see a couple of things. They are harassed and helpless. Now, those words can mean a couple different things. Uh, they probably mean oppressed, uh, which these people are. They're oppressed by Rome. They might be oppressed by poverty or a couple other different things, but they are oppressed. It can also mean exhaustion. It can also mean leaderless. They, they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They have found themselves with problems and they don't have the power or the wisdom to overcome them. They don't want to be here, but they can't get out of it. They are harassed and helpless. So when he looks out at this crowd, he says, man, I see all these people and they are hurting and they do not know how to fix themselves. Or if they do, they don't have the power to actually do that. They are harassed and helpless. And it says like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep and shepherding imagery it shows up all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you might remember the shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. We actually looked at this a couple months ago. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me beside green pastures. He restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. Or what about Isaiah 53? 
one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, talking about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we are pictured as wayward sheep. We're not following after the Lord as we should. We need a good shepherd. And that's actually where Jesus picks up. Jesus will call himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Or he'll tell a parable about the lost sheep to say, listen, even if I have 99 sheep out of my 100, I'm going to leave my 99 and go after that one lost sheep. That's the kind of shepherd that the Lord is. He is the good shepherd. But when he looks at these sheep, he says, listen, they are harassed and they are helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And please understand, that's how he sees us too. That he even looks at any crowd of people here in this church, here in this neighborhood, if you just got a gathered group of people at the summit or the Galleria or at a football game or anywhere else, you get any crowd of people in our culture, he would say the exact same, that we are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You might say, well, why, Adam? Everybody seems to be fine. I don't understand the danger here. What's the, the problem here? There's a couple things going on. First off, they are burdened by the law. We are burdened by the law. We want to do the right thing. We just can't seem to do it. Look at this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me, who, you who are labor and are heavy laden. They're heavy laden down by the law. They want to do all the right things, and they have tried, but they just cannot seem to do it. They, they, they wish that they could, but, but they just cannot. There's just too many things. I have the desire, but not the ability to do this. And so I know the righteous requirements of God, and I know that I haven't fulfilled them. They find themselves weary and heavy laden down by the law. Secondly, they're weighed down by sin and shame. Inevitably, when we fail, and we all fail, we find ourselves ashamed. We've made mistakes, and not even just mistakes. We've, we've chosen terrible things. And when we do that, we feel shame for those. Think about the woman at the well that we talked about last week. This is a woman who's been sleeping around, and everybody knew it, and she just got tired of all the shame that was heaped upon her from this. And so she said, I just don't want to be around you people. I'll come at a different time of day because I just don't want to be with you. So her shame has isolated her, both from the Lord and from the people around her. She's trying to avoid her shame, but now she has to avoid society. It's just not working. This is what our shame does to us. And look, that's not just you, that's all of us. There's people who won't even come into a room like this because they are ashamed to be here. You might be listening to a podcast even right now because you're not going to come to a room because you feel ashamed of what you've done. Might I invite you back? Because guess what? We're all the same. And it ain't just you, it's all of us. There's not a person here who deserves to be here. Amen. We have all made mistakes. We are all weighed down by our law, by the law, weighed down by our sin and shame. And then thirdly, we are bound for hell. Now, there's an uncomfortable statement. It's a concept that we don't like to talk about very much. Jesus looks at these lost sheep and says, they're in danger. A sheep without a shepherd doesn't last long. Sheep without a shepherd is going to be preyed upon 
because it can't take care of itself. It's not gonna get itself home. It's not gonna take care of itself at all. It's gonna lose its life. And when Jesus looks at us, he says, you are like sheep without a shepherd. We are in danger. And he specifically knows what that danger is, that without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a destination and that destination is hell. Now, we don't like talking about that because it makes us uncomfortable. And some of us might say, Adam, I just thought we kind of got beyond that. I just want to talk about just kind of a theology or a God who loves us. But we really have to talk about this. And we do because Jesus does. Do you realize that Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven? Doesn't mean he believes in it more, but he talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. Furthermore, most of the imagery that we have about hell, not all of it, but most of it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. Look at this. This is in Matthew. Same book, just a couple chapters prior. Chapter five, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. How about Matthew 10? Next chapter. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about it in multiple contexts. It's Jesus who is talking about these things. He says, listen, there is a destination for us. When we look at God and says, I do not want to be with you. I do not recognize your authority. I want life on my own apart from you. God will say, fine, we just will not like what we get when we get it. Because separation from God means hell. Separation from what God, from the life that God gives us, it is hell. And so if we don't accept this gospel, we are in danger of losing everything. Not simply in danger of an affliction, in danger of a present problem. We're in danger of losing our very souls. And so Jesus says, you are in danger. Therefore, Jesus is going to come and seek after his sheep. Now look, if you're still uncomfortable about this, here's the thing to know. Jesus never uses hell as a motivational tactic to get people to follow him. Never once does Jesus use hell to try to scare people into following him. And that's probably what makes us uncomfortable, right? Because we've seen people do that. It's Halloween. Do you ever go to a hell house? Do you ever go to one of those? There was like a whole season when we did this in Christianity where there was like, the, like real haunted houses and there was like the Christian version where we did hell houses where they told you like this little story and you walk through and then you get to that one room where they had cranked up the heater to like 4,000. You know what I'm talking about? It's gonna be hot, right? You know, just kind of try to scare you into this is where you're gonna be. You know, and look, I'm sure a few people came to Christ through that, but it, it was, I, I'm looking, but they probably did, but it, it seemed kind of heavy handed, right? It was kind of like this scare tactic of if you don't accept Jesus, this will happen to you tomorrow. And it was just kind of a scare tactic. Or maybe you just had bad experiences with hellfire and brimstone preachers. Think about that title, Hellfire and Brimstone Preachers. I mean, what are they preaching about? They're preaching about hell and the veins are swimming out of their head. And they're going, it's going to be hot, hot, hot. You're going to burn, burn, burn. You know, they just got all up in your face about all the dangers and the evils and the terrors of hell. You better get saved. That was uncomfortable. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do that. He never uses hell as a motivational tactic to be saved. But please hear me when I tell you this. He also doesn't sidestep the issue. He keeps talking about it. Do you know why? Because it's real. If you believe in Jesus, you have to understand that hell is a reality. And Jesus is worried about it enough that he says, you need help, you're in danger. And so he sees all this. He sees his people weighed down by the law, weighed down by their sin and shame. He sees them bound for hell. And look at his reaction to this. Verse 36, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. 
He had compassion. Now, this is a very interesting word in the Greek. Uh, the word is splanchnitsamai, which I just like to say. It's fun. Splanchnitsamai, it's fun. It really is. It comes from this word of splanchna in the Greek, which means your guts, uh, which means this, uh, that there's a visceral reaction in Jesus when he sees the crowds. And that visceral reaction, his gut feeling is compassion. The thing that just happens in him, he cannot help it. The gut feeling in the heart of God when he sees his people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd is to have compassion on them, which is how God feels about you. That when God sees us in our own sin and our own shame like sheep without a shepherd, one commentator said it this way, his heart goes out to us. His heart just reaches out to us. He feels this compassion towards us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That God, the Father, would love this world, this wayward world so much that he would literally send his own son to die for us. What kind of love is this? It's this splanchna. It's this, it's this compassion that he has for wayward children. It's the love of Jesus Christ who willingly lays aside all of his glory and empties himself and takes on the form of a servant to come after us. Why? Because he loves us. God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which, P.S., think about that for a second. Yet another reason why hell exists. If hell does not exist, then why would Jesus need to die for us? If all we need is some correction, if all we need is some help, a self-help book would have done it. A couple extra books of the Bible would have done it. A couple extra prophets or preachers would have done it, but that wouldn't do it. We are in danger of death, and so Jesus comes to die for us. Why? Because he loves us. He has a compassion for you and I that we cannot comprehend. That's how he feels. And not just about you and me, but about the lost world that's around us. Jesus has this overwhelming compassion on us because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so look at the response there, verse 37. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Now, the very next thing he's going to do is to send people out. And so we would be forgiven if what we misread that verse to say was that God says, so go out and share the gospel. But that's not what he says. Did you catch it? Look what he says. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What he says to do is to pray. Which if you've been wondering, why are we talking about this in the middle of a prayer series? Does it make sense now? Because our job is to pray. Now, if he's going to send him out, why does he need to send him out? Why does he start with prayer? Very simple reason, because you and I can't save anybody. You and I can't fix anybody. You and I can't heal anybody, not on our own. No one can come to the Father unless the Lord begins the process by drawing them in the first place. 
They they can't even kind of start the conversation, but God is the one by his spirit who draws people and then we can't actually save them. Even when we present the gospel, only the Lord can be the one in response to their faith can be the one who actually saves them. We cannot do that, but we have a job nonetheless. He says, you are still involved in this. I need you to pray. I want you to pray and ask the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest field. I want you to pray and ask the Lord to move. This is our job. Hopefully you understand this deep in the series. Your prayers matter. Prayer works. God is inviting us into this. It's not some sham. He says, no, you are involved. And yes, I will do the work. I'll even do the work through you. But I need you to pray. I am calling you to pray. So pray and ask the Lord to send out workers into his harvest field. And he describes this field. I hope you notice the metaphor shift. He's gone from sheep and shepherds now to fields and harvests. But he says, look at the fields. The fields are white for harvest. What does he mean? He says, there are tons of people who need the gospel. People who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is not simply true in Jesus' day. It is true in our day as well. The fields around us are literally white for harvest. There are so many people who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, if you're a longtime double oak person, you've heard me say this over the years. Uh, Way back in 2010, uh, there's a group called the um, uh, Association of Religious Data Archives. um, and, And they do study on census data to find out religious information on things. And here's what we found about our area. That in Shelby County, there's roughly about 64,000 evangelical Protestants. But if you look at people who have zero church affiliation, who don't claim any sort of religion at all or a religious affiliation, there are right around 120,000 people in Shelby County who do not claim to follow God at all in any sort of meaningful way. Now, if you're not good on math, let me break that down for you. That means that in our county, lost people outnumber evangelical Christians two to one. There are twice as many lost people as saved people in our county, not our nation, in one of the most religiously observant counties in the nation, lost people outnumber us two to one, which means that the fields are not white to harvest simply overseas or in some other part of the country. But right here, you can look around and see that the fields are white for harvest. They are white for harvest in Mount Laurel and Highland Lakes, and Regent Park, Shoal Creek, and Forest Lakes, and Forest Parks, and the Narrows, all down 41, and up and down 280, down in Chelsea, and up on 119. In our neighborhoods, the fields are white for harvest, because our neighbors, so many of them, do not follow Jesus Christ, and they're like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, and the heart of God goes out to them. And so the question is, do we see that? Do we see that need? And for many of us, that answer is just no. Look, it's like the snowpocalypse. I mean, if I saw the need, I'd run out and meet them. I have no doubt about that. But when we look around, we just kind of assume everybody's fine. We just assume everybody will figure it out. Surely everybody goes to church, right? Right? They don't. And P.S., those numbers I just gave you, they're 11 years old. 
I literally emailed them last week. I'm looking for the numbers from the latest data. They said, I gotta wait till next summer. I will tell you about those numbers too. I don't think they will have gotten better. Which means the fields are even more white for harvest. Do we see this? Do we believe it? Because if we do not believe it, we will not pray. If we do not believe that people are in need, we will not pray. If people don't look like they need help, we won't ask them if they need help. We have to see it. Do we see what Jesus sees? When we look out at the crowds, do we see what Jesus sees? And so very quickly, I want to give you five prayers. I want to challenge us as a congregation to pray five prayers. Five things that I think is Jesus is inviting us to pray and to join him in. I would encourage us to do the very same thing. The first thing is this. We need to pray for a change of heart. We need to pray for a change of heart. Because when Jesus sees the lost, when he sees these people harassed and helpless, it's just natural for him to have this compassion for those around him. And do we have that same compassion? Because for many of us, the answer is no. Look, if we're talking about a random crowd, we can say, sure, I love people, but let's make this a little more specific. Let's talk about who we're talking about here. We're talking about our neighbors. We're talking about people who don't follow Jesus Christ or who more accurately don't want to follow Jesus Christ, who oppose Jesus Christ, who do not share the values of Jesus Christ. These are the people that Jesus is passionately concerned about. And the question is, what's our passion towards them? Because for some of us, it's not compassion, it's anger or frustration or disgust. And that's just not the heart of God. God's heart is splanchnitzimai. It's compassion. When he sees these very same people, enemies of God, he has compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. What would happen if we saw them the same way? Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors in his book, Vanishing Grace, talks about this. Uh, he said, what would happen if we saw the lost less as evil and more as just lost? Because lost is kind of a code word. If you're in the church, lost is kind of a code word for non-Christian. If you're in the church, that's what we call you, okay, if you're a lost person. All right, it's like, it's just non-Christian, you're lost. But we tend to think other things, but think about what the word means, lost. You know what lost people do? Make wrong turns. You know what lost people do? They make horrible decisions out of desperation because they're scared and upset. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what to do. So they will invariably do the wrong thing. When it comes to dealing with people who do not follow after Jesus Christ or do not love Jesus Christ, why are we surprised when they do evil things? They're lost. They don't know the right hand from their left. They're harassed and helpless. And so instead of holding that against them as if they know better, can we just recognize they're lost and they're in need of a shepherd? What would happen if we saw people who don't follow after Jesus Christ less as evil and more as lost? That does not mean that we have to justify sin. It doesn't mean that we ever condone sin. We don't have to violate our values, but we can absolutely love people in the way that Jesus loves people. And you say, Adam, that's just not in me. I don't know if I can do that. Then pray. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to change our hearts. Ask the Lord, I dare you, to say, God, can you put a heart in me like you have for other people? Can, can you help me to see and love other people the way you do? 
Literally, I want your heart in me. Can you change my heart that I feel towards others the way you feel towards them and see what God will do? That's one of the easiest ways of changing our heart towards somebody is to pray for them. So pray for them. Can you pray for a change of heart? Secondly, pray for an opportunity for the gospel. Pray for an opportunity for the gospel. Remember, we're asking the Lord to send out laborers. God's involving us here. He says, then pray that we would have opportunities for the gospel. Look at how Paul describes this in Colossians chapter two, or chapter four rather, verses two through four. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am prisoned, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Look at verse three. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word. He actually uses this metaphor multiple times. He said, pray that God would open up a door, that there would be an open door for the gospel. Sometimes doors are closed, then pray. Pray that God would open up a door. Again, do you see what's happening? Only God can open the doors. God is the one working, but he invites us into the process. Pray that he would open a door. Pray for this very specific opportunity. And so the question is, are we praying for those opportunities? If you find resistance to the gospel amongst a a family member or a friend or or in your workplace, then can you pray for them? Pray that God would open up a door for the gospel. Pray that God would do something, that he would give you an opportunity, maybe apart from a crowd, to have a, a personal conversation with somebody or for a Bible study to raise up and begin having influence in your workplace or or a new relationship to be forming or a new way to, to interact with a family member. Pray for an open door for the gospel. Don't just walk up to a door, shake the handle, and when you find resistance, go, oh, well, I guess that's locked, and move along. Pray that God opens it. Pray for an open door to the word and be willing to pray for days, weeks, months to see what God might do, but he's inviting us into the process. Are we praying for an open door for the word? Here's the third thing. We need to pray for the lost. We need to pray for the lost specifically. I hope that at this point in the sermon, the Lord has brought somebody to mind. That already he's been reminding you about a a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member, a child, a parent. Somebody you know says, man, this person is lost. This person does not know Jesus Christ. This person does not know salvation. They are lost. God is inviting us to pray for them. He's inviting us to pray for them by name to ask that the Lord would work in their life. Some of us are so frustrated by by these people for for so many different valid reasons, but instead of simply being frustrated or talking about it, are we praying for them and being willing to pray for those days and weeks and months to see what God will do? God says, I can and move, but I am asking you, I'm inviting you, I'm involving you to pray, and not just for individuals, but, but for culture. Please understand this. We have zero right to complain about our culture if we're not praying for it. We have zero right to complain about our culture unless we are spending time praying that God would turn things around. We can't do that on our own. No one has the power to do it on their own, but God does. Are we praying for the lost? Are we taking prayer seriously, understanding that it actually does work? Here's the fourth thing. Pray that we take advantage of opportunities for the gospel. Pray that we take advantage of opportunities for the gospel. Here's the danger you should all be forewarned about. 
If you pray for opportunities for the gospel, God will sometimes answer by sending you. Well, you said, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. You asked for an opportunity and the Lord will now send you. The very next verse, we're at the end of chapter nine, the very next verse, look at this, 10-1. And he called to him as 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Does that sound familiar? It is the exact same wording in the passage we read that described Jesus' ministry. Jesus is now sending his apostles to go do the same ministry without him. He sends them. So he says, pray for God to send out workers, and then he sends them. He said, yeah, but Adam, those are apostles, right? Okay, let's try another one. Here's Luke chapter 10. Verses 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. He says the exact same thing, not to the 12, but now to the 72. He's found 60 more people. Who are they? Don't know. We have no idea, which means it's us. These are the random followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm sending everybody, not just the chosen few. I'm sending everybody. When you and I begin to pray for open doors for the gospel, he might open them in front of you. Will we take them? Will we step into that conversation and actually share the gospel? Speak the words. Have the conversation. Have the talk. Will we have the boldness to do that? Because sometimes God will give that opportunity to you. Look, I'm fine if you want to bring somebody here on Sunday mornings because I'm going to preach the gospel. We're going to do that here. And people can come to faith in Christ here, but please understand, a lot of people are just not going to come in here first. They're not. They're not. And they don't have to. You know why? Because the Lord is sending you into every single place that it needs to go. The Lord has chosen us. We are the people in this area at this time. For all of those neighborhoods we just mentioned, we are the people for this area at this time and God is sending all of us to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't go forth for one hour on a Sunday morning. It can go out all over the place throughout the city through each and every one of us. God will fill your mouth with the words that you need to share if we will simply be bold enough to follow after. And look, I'm sure there have been times in your life where you had an opportunity and you just didn't take it. It's happened to me too. And we all feel bad about that. We said, man, I wish I should have said something. I wish I had taken that opportunity. I know, I know that feeling. It happens to me too. But don't let that shame keep you from taking the next opportunity because he will give you more. He is sending us out to take the gospel of the kingdom to people who desperately need it. The question is, will we actually do it? Will we take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of us? And fifthly and lastly, We pray for God to raise up more pastors, ministers, and missionaries. We are all called to go and share the gospel, but God does raise up people who are going to do that vocationally. That's like literally their job to go and do that, whether they be a pastor, a missionary, a servant of some kind, a a minister. The Lord raises up people to do this. And guys, we need a lot more of those. I don't mean to scare you, but you're about to watch an exodus from the ministry past few years have been rough, gang. You're about to watch a bunch of people quit from burnout, from failure, for whatever reason, 
You're about to watch a whole bunch of people exit the ministry and we need more people to fill in the ranks. This past summer, I was thrilled to be able to preach a couple youth camps and I watched God call teenagers to say, I want you to follow me in vocational ministry. It was amazing to see, but we need more. And look, he might be calling you. You say, Adam, at my age, at this stage of life, I've heard stranger things. The Lord might be calling you to lead in a brand new way, to do a brand new thing in this particular season, but you are needed. And so pray that the Lord would send out all of us, but also specifically pastors, ministers, missionaries, raise up vocationally to go out into the harvest field. It's about to be a very interesting decade and we need all the help that we can get. And so the question is, will we pray? Will you and I pray in response to the command of the Lord, seeing what he sees in this moment, in this season, will we be God's people and feel his compassion and share his gospel with a world who desperately needs it? If we will, we will see a harvest of souls amongst us. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want you just, if you can, to go ahead and respond to that. Let's begin to pray. We're going to spend an extended time of worship here at the end of the service. But look, this isn't just something that we hear about. It's something that God is inviting you into. And so maybe God has put somebody in your heart, somebody that you haven't prayed for in a while. Maybe you've been praying for, but maybe he says, I want you to lift this person up to me as we begin to sing and pray in these next couple moments, you're gonna have that opportunity. You can pray at your seat. You can, I'll be right down here at the front. If you wanna pray with somebody, I'll be glad to pray with you. We got places to, to kneel up front. Maybe you just wanna come forward and lift somebody up to the Lord. It might be a child, a parent, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. Lift him up by name. Ask the Lord that he would bring an opportunity to share the gospel. Let's pray for our culture. Let's pray for our community. Let's pray for the people that God has set us amongst. He's inviting us into it. Or maybe it's you, and you came here today, and you need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're the one who's in danger, and you are harassed and helpless, and you didn't know that the shepherd cared about you, but he does. He has compassion for you so much that he gave his life for you. And he's inviting you to come and give your life to him that you might have eternal life in him. Maybe today is the day you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do it right now. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I need you. I choose to trust you. Give your life to him. But let's be a people who prays. So Lord, help us. Lord, as we sing, as we pray, Lord, hear us as we lift up individual people, groups, friends, neighbors, whoever it might be. And Lord, would, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will done. Lord, we want to see you bring that harvest. We can't do it, but you can. And so, Lord, we're praying, we're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. Would you be the one to bring that harvest, Lord, and send us out to share your gospel in whatever way you choose. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up with me. Let's sing together. These altars are open. You can pray at your seat. You can pray down front. But let's worship together.